It's good to see everyone this morning. Uh, Kevin's, Kevin's not, up, not up to it this morning, so you pray for him. Um, so you'll have to deal with me in the pulpit. Uh, let's see. I uh, just mentioned a couple of things by way of announcement. You can put it on your calendar uh, on July 23rd. That's a Sunday. We're going to plan to have our uh, a baptism this summer. And so that'll be uh, at the normal service time, so at 1030. Uh, but we won't meet here. We'll meet down at Lake St. George at the State Park and, um, and have our worship service there and a baptism. So I encourage you to put that on your calendar. Plan to be there. Um, that'll be a real joyful thing. Uh, let's see. Any other announcements this morning? Oh, oh let's see. Okay. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, good. Well, praise the Lord. Lots of clients at the food pantry yesterday, but lots of extra cheese. So if you need cheese, talk to Diane. Um, and uh, the other thing I need to mention is that there's a business meeting this Thursday. Uh, so that'll be at 7 o'clock. We won't have, uh, well, we typically we do have prayer meeting, so we'll we'll have a, a, a prayer meeting uh, at six to pray over at the business meeting. So if you'd like to be there, come at six and pray and fellowship together, and then we'll have the uh, the business meeting at seven o'clock. That's this Thursday night here at the church. That's open to church members. Speaking of membership, if you're a Christian and you're a part of the church and you're interested in church membership, we'd love to talk to you about that. So feel free to ask me if you have questions about that or if you're interested in being baptized. All right, I think that's it in terms of announcements. Um, let's pray together as we go to the Lord. Our triune God, we worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We come to you this morning and we ask your blessing over this time, over this place, over these people, and over your word as we hear it and sing it and pray it. We pray that you would meet us here by your Holy Spirit. We know that unless the, Lord's, unless the Lord builds this house, the laborers build it in vain. We know, Lord, that unless you are among us, unless you are speaking, we can do nothing here of lasting value. And so we pray that you would meet us here by your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's begin with a responsive reading. I'd ask you to stand, and, uh, and you can turn to the back of your bulletin. And this is an excerpt from Psalm 68. So let's read this together. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord. To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel, and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary. 
the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Amen. Amen. You can uh, remain standing and open the green book in front of you, and we'll sing number eight. Psalm number eight. It's the tune of number 17 in the, in the hymnal. That's all right. come forward to take the morning offering. This is a reminder, this is for um, folks who are committed to our church. If you're a guest, please feel no, no obligation to give.
Let's pray together. Our Father, we recognize that every good gift we have is yours, is from you, and that we ourselves are yours, and that if we belong to you, we claim nothing for ourselves, but that all belongs to you. And so we give to the work of your church and the building of your kingdom only a part of, uh, of what you've given to us. And we ask that you'd bless these gifts, that uh, you'd use them for the building of your church and for the glory of your name in Liberty, in Waldo County, in Maine, and across the world. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Our scripture reading this morning will be found in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9. Uh, if you want to follow along in your pew Bibles, that'll be on page 945. Hebrews 9. And beginning in verse 11. It's a passage which describes how effective Jesus' death for sinners is um, to cleanse us of all sin and unrighteousness. Hebrews 9 and beginning in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons, persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, 
will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of God. Let's stand together. You can open the blue hymnal in front of you to number 56. We'll sing to God be the glory. Savior bleed. Yeah. 
take some time now to go to the Lord together in prayer. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. We come to you this morning, our Father and our God, and we acknowledge your power, your might, your glory, that you are God and we are not. You are king over all creation. And yet as we come before your throne, we come, well, with a certain amount of fear and trepidation, but also with a sense of boldness because of what you've done for us, Lord Jesus. That though you were in the form of God, you did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but you emptied yourself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that being found in human form, you humbled yourself to, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We thank you for the ransom you paid on the cross for our sins. And we praise you, Father, that in Jesus' resurrection and in his ascension, you have highly exalted him, raising him from the dead and seating him in glory, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As we come to you, Father, we, we acknowledge our sins and our transgressions. We know that to you all hearts are open, all desires are known, and that from you no secrets are hid. We acknowledge and lament our sins and our offenses against you and your glory. We confess that we're sorry for our transgressions. Lord, when, when we come to understand fully the reality of our sin and of your holiness, we acknowledge that the burden of our sin is more than we can bear. And so we throw ourselves on your mercy. Have mercy on us, merciful Father, for the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus. We ask that you would forgive us all that is past and that you would grant us that we might forevermore serve and please you in newness of life 
to the glory and honor of your name. Let's take a moment now to silently confess our sins unto God. Hear the word of God to all who truly turn to him. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Lord, you are a hiding place for us. You preserve us from trouble. You surround us with shouts of deliverance. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And so this morning, Father, as we, as we bask in the forgiveness you've offered us in Jesus, we rejoice and we are glad in you. Father, I thank you for this opportunity we have to be together, and I, I thank you for the gift of your word and how, how wonderfully and clearly you've spoken to us, especially in and through Jesus. I thank you for the, the good news that you've given us, and I pray that as we look to your word this morning that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you'd open our eyes to see Jesus for who he is, that you would open our hearts to love Jesus for who he is, and to give ourselves over to him and to serve him the rest of our days. I pray, Lord, that you'd be at work amongst our congregation, that you'd be maturing us, that you'd be making us more and more like Jesus, that we'd be effective in evangelism, that you'd equip our, our, um, our hands to serve our neighbors, you equip our, our voices, Lord, to share the good news that we've heard and in which we are being saved. Um, that, um, that we would be the kind of people who are known as those people who are always talking about Jesus. I ask your blessing over the rest of our service, and we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, before we turn to the word, we're going to sing one more song. So I'd ask you to stand together. Um, I'm sorry, let's stand and let's pray the Lord's Prayer together first. I'm prone to forget that. Let's stand, and we're going to pray as Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. And you can open the green book to number 205 in Christ alone. Cease. 
my comforter, my all in all. Here in the love of Christ I stand, in Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live, there in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Amen. You may be seated. You can open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians and chapter 15 is where we're going to start. We're going to be all over the place in a number of different passages, but that's where we're going to start anyways. You can pray for me. I had like a 48-hour cold on Tuesday, and I thought it was all gone, but apparently I'm losing my voice this morning, so you pray for me. First Corinthians 15, and we're now in our fourth week <clears throat> moving through uh, the statement of faith that uh, the deacons and I have worked through and which we'd like to see adopted as our church's statement of faith, a summary statement of what we believe as, as Christians. And so uh, you'll find uh, that a section of that statement of faith in your bulletin, on the bulletin insert. And so we're going to be working through this section, section four, this morning and and at every turn, we're going to be looking to the Word of God to see if these things are so. Uh, in the first section of the Statement of Faith, we ask the question, what do we believe about the Bible? What do we believe, we believe about the Word of God? Uh, in the second section, we ask, well, what do we believe about God Himself? Who is God? And then last week, we asked, what's wrong with the world? 
What's broken with this work? Because look around, this is a beautiful world, but it's a broken one. And so we asked the question, what went wrong? And we saw that the answer was, in the beginning, we as human beings turned away from God. The problem with the world is, is us. The problem with the world is me. Is that we're sinners. And that we've ignored passively or rebelled actively against the God who made this world. We've turned away from light and life and brought upon ourselves the curse of sin and death. That's what's wrong with the world. And the question we're going to ask this week is, is there any hope? Is there any way that we could be saved? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. And we, we, looked at, we saw that answer briefly at the, end of, at the end of the sermon last week, but we're going to get into it in depth this morning. Is there any way that we might be saved? And the answer is absolutely yes. God has made a way. And if you look at the, uh, uh, at the, s- the section of the Confession of Faith in your bulletin, it begins like this. It says, we believe that the salvation of sinners is holy of grace through the mediatorial offices of Jesus, the Son of God. Is there a way that we can be saved? Yes, says the confession, and the way is Jesus. The way is Jesus. This whole section is all about Jesus. So that's our sermon this morning. Jesus. Who is he? What has he done and what does that mean to us? It's important that it begin, the confession begins by saying that the salvation of sinners is holy of grace. Basically, that means is, what that means is we can't save ourselves. It's nothing we can do in our own power. We're in, we're in such a pickle as sinners that we are not in a situation where we can, we can do anything to save ourselves. We are guilty before a holy God of rebellion and sin. Our hearts are stained by sin, and we've brought upon ourselves the curse of sin and death and hell, and we can't get out of it on our own. When we say that salvation, the salvation of sinners is holy of grace, it means we can't get out of it by trying real hard to be better. It means there's nothing we can do in our own power to save ourselves. It means we're totally reliant on a Savior. And the Savior, we're told, is Jesus. The salvation of sinners is holy of grace through the mediatorial offices of Jesus. A mediator is someone who stands in between. A mediator is someone who stands in between. Basically, what we're saying is we need someone, somehow, to stand between us and a holy God and to reconcile us. Somehow we need someone who is able to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to die our death, and to bring us back into the fellowship of a holy God. We need a mediator. We need one who's going to stand in between. And we don't just need someone to show us the way. We're not just lost sheep that need to be pointed back to the sheepfold. We're broken sheep. We're sheep on the verge of death, right? Lying in a mountain ditch deep in the ravine we've find, found ourselves fallen into. And what we need desperately is a shepherd who will climb down in after us 
and pick us up and on his strength put us over his shoulders carry us out carry us home bind up our wounds cleanse us of our sin and feed us in green pastures in his home forevermore what we need is a savior what we need is a mediator and that savior is jesus The final section, the the third we believe of what you have in front of you this morning says this, and I love these words, and I want this to be kind of our focusing section this morning. We believe that uniting in his wonderful person, speaking about Jesus, the tenderest sympathies with divine perfections, he is every way qualified to be a suitable, a compassionate, and an all-sufficient Savior. This is language written in the 1830s in a much more beautiful way than we would write it today. The point here being that Jesus is both able to save and willing. Okay? We say that Jesus has in himself divine perfections, that he's suitable and all-sufficient. We mean that something about Jesus means he's actually able to be the one to pick us up, bring us home, and cleanse us. Okay? He's actually able to save us. And when we say that Jesus has in his person tender sympathies, that he's compassionate, we mean not only is he able to sin, but he wants to. Not only is he able to sin, he's willing to save us. And scripture teaches that Jesus is both able to forgive us of our sins and to bring us into the presence of the Father and willing. And this morning, basically what I want to do is to prove it. It's like, okay, you say Jesus is able to save me. You say Jesus is willing to save me. Well, prove it. Prove it. And what we're going to do in order to prove it is to look at Jesus' work. And that's the center section, the second we believe of this statement, is a summary of Jesus' work, a summary of Jesus' saving ministry. And at each point, at his incarnation, at his death, at his resurrection, and at his reign in heaven, we're going to ask, how does this show us that Jesus is able and willing to save? Okay? And my, my prayer is that we would walk out of here this morning more fully convinced in our hearts and minds Jesus is able and willing to save and my prayer is that all of us will have trusted him for this salvation all that's by way of introduction I'd like to read just a couple of verses in 1 Corinthians 15 to set the stage this is the Apostle Paul summarizing for us the good news of Jesus 1 Corinthians 15 and beginning in verse 1 The Apostle Paul tells us this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here it is, the gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve 
And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is the word of God. And I'd ask us to pray as we, as we begin this morning. Father, please be among us this morning as we look to your word, as we consider these great and wonderful truths that we would not merely have knowledge in our heads of what the Bible teaches about Jesus, but in our hearts we might know him and his love. And we pray these things in his precious name. Amen. All right, Jesus is able and willing to save. Prove it. Prove it. We believe that this Jesus by the appointment of the Father, freely took upon himself our nature. Our nature. This is, this is one of the first and most wonderful truths of the Christian faith. Who is Jesus? We've already seen when we spoke about the nature of God that Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is God. But the incredible thing about Jesus is that in his incarnation, he actually took on a human nature. This is what the Apostle John says in John chapter 1 and verse 14. Speaking of Jesus as the Word, he tells us this. He says, And the Word, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth this is an incredible thing right? that god the mighty maker the creator of the heavens and the earth should actually enter into his creation and live among us as a human man truly human this is this is why Jesus matters. You want to see God? You want to know who God is? Look at Jesus. Right? Jesus shows up on the scene and he tells the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. He is God. Truly God. But not only truly God. The point here is that Jesus came and became truly man. He freely took upon himself our nature. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're told this in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Isn't this a strange and a wonderful thing? That the author would write himself into the story. That the composer would put himself into his own symphony. That God would actually enter into space and time and dwell among us as a man in the person Jesus Christ. And why? 
why would God do this? Why would God humble himself? Why would he lower himself? Well, the answer scripture gives is, is love. The Apostle John, again, recording Jesus' words in John chapter 3, very famous words, tells us this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus' coming into the world is the first step in God's great rescue plan. His plan to save and to redeem sinners. Jesus is humbling himself. This is the great king of all creation, humbling himself to the point of actually taking on human form. Why would a great king do this? Why would a great God do this? Why would he humble himself in this way? Love. So, he asked the question, is God really willing to save? Is Jesus really willing to save? Well, he went this far. He went this far and he went further. And he did it by the appointment of the Father. That's clear in John 3, that God the Father sent the Son, that in the eternal life of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, it's the Father who sent the Son, and it's the Son who came in obedience to the Father into the world so that the world might be saved through him. In Hebrews 4, the writer of Hebrews marvels at this reality. Hebrews 4. He says, isn't it amazing that we can know Jesus? Hebrews 4, 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. He says, isn't this amazing that we can actually know God in the person of Jesus Christ, who was and is a true human being who, who experienced all the normal experiences of human life, who suffered pain and needed band-aids, who was tested with needing to be patient, right? who had annoying younger siblings, This Jesus who is tempted in every way that we are, and yet, the writer of Hebrews says, without sin. And this too, the confession affirms, that he freely took upon himself our nature, and yet, without sin. And if we aren't already amazed at the incarnation, at God dwelling among us as a man, this next thing should really wake us up that there's something radical going on here that God is now dwelling amongst men in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that this man, truly a son of Eve, born of a woman, is without sin. Because when, when's the last time that happened? Never. This is something radically new, ever since the garden, ever since Adam and Eve. Human beings, we've been cast under the curse of sin, and yet here's one who, who shows up and is without sin one who walks in holiness, one who, we're told by the confession, honored the divine law by his personal obedience. And he was tested severely. 
We read in the Gospels about, about Jesus going out into the wilderness, being led by the Holy Spirit. And there he's tempted, right? Tempted in ways actually, in a sense, far more severe than Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent living in paradise with everything they needed. Jesus is tempted by, the, by Satan in the wilderness after 40 days of fasting. And he still stands firm. He doesn't fall into sin. Here in the person of Jesus, we have, we have something of a new start. The Apostle Paul refers to as a new Adam. He honored the divine law by his personal obedience. And that by his death, made a full atonement for our sins. The humility of Jesus doesn't stop at the incarnation. The humility of Jesus doesn't stop at taking on human form. It goes further, Philippians 2. To have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what are we to make of this? The Son of God comes into the world, sent by the Father on a divine rescue mission, lives a perfect life, and then dies. Willingly, he actually doesn't put up any resistance. He allows himself to be crucified by, by Roman soldiers at the request of the Jewish leaders, Jewish authorities. Son of God comes and dies. What kind of salvation is this? How is this victory? Well, the uniform teaching of the New Testament is that Jesus accomplished much in his death. Back even to the simple words of 1 Corinthians 15, which we read earlier. I delivered up to you as of, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for what? For our sins. Christ died for our sins. That by his death he made a full atonement for our sins. Atonement is sacrificial language. Has to do with making a sacrifice. Has to do with a covering of sin. Throughout the Old Testament, time and time again, when the people of God needed to be reconciled to God, what did God require of them? He said, if you're going to live in my presence, if you're going to be cleansed of sin, what is required? Blood has to be shed. Right? So time and time again, throughout the Old Testament, God requires his people to sacrifice bulls and goats so that their sins sort of symbolically will be placed on these animals and that they will be cleansed of them. But the writer of Hebrews, quite clearly in Hebrews 10, tells us that the blood of bulls and goats can't actually take away sins. That's Hebrews 10.4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so what's God doing all this time by giving them this sacrificial system? Well, the writer of Hebrews goes on to explain, all this bloodshed was, was meant as a sign it was meant to tell the people that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Someone has to die for the forgiveness of sins, right? Because the penalty, the wage of sin is death. 
It's what we deserve for our rebellion against God. And so, and so how, how can we be saved, right? And this is the great, great question of God's justice. If we deserve sin, if we deserve death as a result of our sin, how can God be just and just let us go? This is the great dilemma at the heart of the gospel. And the answer, actually God's answer, is Jesus Christ. That the Father sends the Son into the world not only to dwell among among us, but to die among us as a sacrifice, as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He's in every way qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. Why? Well, in order to sacrifice himself for our sins, he would have had to be a man, right? A bull and a goat can't die for a human sin. He's got to be a human being. And he can't be a sinner, right? How could I? Could I give my, my life for someone else's sin? Well, no, I've, my life is already forfeit. Someone's got to come and give his life for, for my sins who himself is not a sinner. And if, if someone's going to come and die, not just for my sins, but for the sins of the whole world, he needs to be a man who can die for sin, who can actually bear on himself an eternal weight of sin. And so in order for him to bear this penalty, this great weight, he needs to be not only truly man, but actually truly God. Is Jesus an all-sufficient Savior? He is. There on the cross, as Jesus died, he was perfectly qualified to die for an eternal weight of sin. To bear all the guilt and shame of all our sins in him in that moment. He is the Messiah that was long foretold by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, who told of the need of one who was to die on behalf of the sins of the people of God. Isaiah 53, 4, these words should be familiar to you. Maybe the most beautiful passage in all of Scripture about the cross, which is incredible because it was written so many years beforehand. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the reality of the cross. This is the reality of Jesus, is that everything he did leading up to the cross and then in his willing sacrifice at the cross, he was offering himself actually to the Father as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. We just sang these words in that beautiful song, In Christ Alone, that on the cross, as Jesus died, The wrath of God was satisfied. Every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I stand. 
Throughout the New Testament, we encounter this word propitiation, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And what this means is that Jesus actually bore the wrath of God in our place. Jesus died when we deserved to. He bore our sin. He bore our death. And then what happened? And then he rose. Then he rose, right? 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's summarizing the gospel in as few words as he can manage, right? He says, this is it. This is the gospel. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 15 to say, and if Jesus didn't rise from the dead without the resurrection, we are of all people most to be pitied. He said, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we've believed in vain, right? Because without the resurrection, who is Jesus? A man who made quite a lot of radical claims, who gained a small following in the Near East in the first century, who died. There's a lot of people who go out there making radical claims about themselves, right? Apart from the resurrection, Jesus is a man who claimed to be God who then died. With the resurrection, who is Jesus? He's a man who said, before Abraham was, I am. He's a man who claimed to be God and then died and then rose from the dead to prove it. The resurrection is the seal of Jesus' identity. It's the cornerstone of our faith. The Apostle Peter, in his sermon in Acts at Pentecost, he says, Jesus rose from the dead because he wasn't able to be held by death. Right? Death was not strong enough to hold the Son of God. Chrysostom, in a very famous, very famous Easter sermon, he says, death swallowed a man and encountered God. Death swallowed a man and encountered life itself. And it was not able to hold it. Jesus, Jesus broke through death from the inside out and he, ra- he was raised from the dead. And this is good news for us too, right? This is, this is the picture of baptism, right? Baptism is death and resurrection. It's the picture of a grave. And when we're baptized, we're saying, we've been buried with Christ in his death and raised in his resurrection. Jesus, in his death, I'm dead with him. My sins are nailed to the cross, and I bear them no more. And I've been raised to new life with him too. His resurrection, that's mine too. Um, I heard quoted this past week the words of, I think think it was of George Herbert, who's an English poet, um, I heard them quoted, so this is secondhand, but I thought it was beautiful. He, he said something like, um, for the Christian, death goes from being an executioner to being a gardener. From an executioner to a gardener, where before knowing Christ, death has this, this threat of eternal separation and darkness hold, held over us, right? But that in Christ, the threat of earthly death is comes at the hands of a gardener who plants our bodies as seeds in the ground awaiting the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Having risen from the dead, he's now enthroned in heaven. We looked at this reality only a couple of weeks ago. In Colossians 3, in verse 1, Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. If you have been raised with Christ, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So set your mind on things that are above where Christ is. Where is Christ? Above, at the right hand of God. The Gospels record that Jesus appeared to his disciples. Paul made a kind of an exhaustive list here of many to whom he appeared who were still alive even almost to the end of the first century. And after 40 days, he ascended to the Father where he, we believe, sits even today, not resting but reigning, seated on the throne. He is now enthroned in heaven. I love the book of Hebrews. There's so much encouragement in it. Um, the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 4, and this is a passage we've, we've already looked at today, but let's go back to this. Hebrews 4. Um, so much of the book of Hebrews is comfort. Um, and basically what the writer of Hebrews is doing in Hebrews 4 is he's looking up at Jesus enthroned in heaven and he's saying, how good it is that Jesus is enthroned in heaven. Apart from him, apart from a mediator, apart from one who's died for our sins and been raised for our resurrection, seated at the right hand of the Father, when we come before the Father, what do we have to plead before a holy God? Only our sins. Apart from Christ, we should be petrified to stand before a holy God. But in Christ, we can be bold to come before a holy God. Let's look at Hebrews 4, 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Do you understand this, friends? That when you pray to God, there is one seated at the right hand of the Father who is truly God, and truly man, a human being who is tempted in every way as you are, a man who wept, a man who grieved, a man who can sympathize with our weaknesses, and a man who then laid down his life for you. For you. a man who's been raised and a man who is seated at the right hand of God with his purpose being to make intercession for us. 
This is what happens when we pray, right? Every time we pray as Christians, for the most part, we say in Jesus' name, right? Come to the, pray to the Father in Jesus' name. Right? We go before the Father and we point to Jesus and we say, I'm with him. And Jesus says, she's with me. He's with me. He's covered. She's covered. He's forgiven. He's whole. This one belongs to me. We believe that uniting in him, in his wonderful person, the tenderest sympathies with divine perfections, he is every way qualified to be a suitable, a compassionate, and an all-sufficient Savior. You see how Jesus is qualified to be sufficient to cleanse you of your sin and to raise you into new life? He is everything necessary. He is the way, and he's very willing to save sinners. He's very willing to save sinners. I want to consider a couple of passages on this, on this note. One, I want, to, I want to turn to the end of the Gospel of Luke. The end of the Gospel of Luke, Luke 22 this is just before Jesus' betrayal. It's before his crucifixion. Jesus knows full well everything that is to come, and he's in the garden. Luke 22, and beginning in, in verse 42, this is what he's praying as his disciples are falling asleep, unable to stay awake. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. There appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus, in this moment, knows full well everything that is to come, both the physical pain of the Romans' best torture and death method, but he also knows full well that on the cross, he is going to bear hell itself. The wrath of God poured out on him in full, and he's sweating blood. And in the weakness of his humanity, he prays, Lord, if there's any other way, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And what did he do when they came to arrest him and his disciples pulled out a sword? He says, put that away, Peter. And every step closer to that cross, he walked willingly. He didn't have to go to the cross for his sake. He went to the cross for your sake. If you ever have a question as to whether Jesus is willing to save sinners, as to whether he's actually interested in saving us from sin and death, think of the Garden of Gethsemane. Think of the sweat drops of blood. He's willing. He was willing to die so that you could be saved. You think there's anything he wouldn't do? There's another passage in Luke I want to think about. Luke 7, this is one of many like this. As we read these verses, I want you to understand it's this Jesus, this same man, who is seated at the right hand of the Father for you right now. Luke 7 and verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. 
As he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So out comes this funeral procession from the, the, the town. This son, the body of this man is being carried, and his weeping mother is coming, wailing, not just for the death of her beloved son, but also for her own plight now as a widow with no one to care for her or to protect her. And when the Lord, this is what Jesus does when people come to him who are broken and in need. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And he came up and he touched the buyer and the bearers stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. Can you imagine the action right as he, they set him down and Jesus pulls him up and says, here, your son. And fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. They were, they were more right about that, that, that than they realized, right? This was the very life and light of all creation there who had, who had touched this young man's hand and lifted him up. This is just one of so many examples in the Gospels. Again and again, it's almost like when you're reading the Gospels, you get tired of all the people Jesus is saving, Right? It's like, come on. Like again and again and again. People who are broken, who are in need, people who are sick, people who are sinners, and they need saving. What did Jesus come to do? He came to save. And it's this Jesus, this Jesus who wiped the tears from this widow's face, who sits at the right hand of God the Father. It's this Jesus who you go to when you've messed everything up and you say, Lord, I'm falling apart. And it's this Jesus who welcomes you in. And friends, if it's this Jesus who when we're in the darkness of sin, stuck in the ditch, sheep with broken legs caught in the thorns down in the valley. It's this Jesus who's actually come down after us to pick us up and to put us over his shoulders and to carry us home, to bind up our wounds, to cleanse us of our sin, and to make us whole, to feed us with green pastures, and to bring us into the eternal life of God forever. One more passage, because I love it so much. And we'll close with this. Matthew 11. I, want, I really want us to see that in Jesus, he unites both tender sympathies and divine perfections. Some of you might be tempted to think that Jesus is able to save, and he might, be, he might even be willing to save, but he's not actually, he'll do it half-heartedly. You might be tempted to think that Jesus, Jesus died and says, yes, technically I'll forgive you, but I'm not sure I'm really interested in knowing you. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 11. 
beginning in verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then listen to this invitation of Jesus, and hear it as his invitation even this morning from the throne. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus loves saving sinners. He loves it when people come to him on their worst day, having messed everything up, and he loves to run and greet and embrace broken, weary, needy, sinful people. Even if you've kept running to him week after week after week for 40 years, he still loves saving you. We believe that the salvation of sinners is holy of grace through the mediatorial offices of Jesus, the Son of God, we believe that this Jesus, by the appointment of the Father, freely took upon himself our nature, yet without sin, that he honored the divine law by his personal obedience, that by his death made a full atonement for our sins, that having risen from the dead, he is now enthroned in heaven. We believe that uniting in his wonderful person the tenderest sympathies with divine perfections, he is every way qualified to be a suitable, a compassionate, and an all-sufficient Savior. Do we believe this? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that when you, we were far from you, you came after us. We thank you even, even for us individually that in our own lives, at just the right time, you've come to us and met us to reveal to us yourself and to draw us to you. I pray, Lord, that for those who, who are here this morning who, who maybe have never known you before or who are feeling that work of your spirit upon their hearts, that they would, that they would be open to it and that they would follow you that they would run to you, Lord Jesus, with everything that they are. And I pray, Lord, that for all of us who have, who have come, to know, come to know you in the past, that we would remember these things, that we would not forget these things, that we would not forget the wonder of knowing Jesus, that we would not forget how capable you are of forgiving us and how wonderfully willing you are to forgive us that it would be our joy day after day and week after week and year after year until that day you, you take us home to run to you every day with our sin and our weakness and our need and to have you meet us and embrace us and love us and bring us home. Father, please make this glorious gospel the very foundation of our lives that everything we do and say would be done out of 
out of an understanding of the love of Jesus Christ in which we stand. We pray these things in his name, in the name of the one seated at the right hand. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll sing. We have reason to praise. Praise God from whom all